Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I'm your host, John Yarga. Today's guest is Jonathan Kramnick, the author of a new book, Criticism and Truth on Method in Literary Studies from the University of Chicago Press. Criticism and Truth offers a formal analysis of the particular practices and habits of academic literary criticism within the context of the transformations brought on by the Great Recession of 2008 and the COVID-19 pandemic. In this book, Jonathan describes close reading as a, quote, creative, immersive, and transformative writing practice that fosters a unique kind of engagement with the world, end quote. The, the case for literary study is made not through an appeal to contemporary relevance or intellectual abstraction, but in the material specificity of how literary criticism is done. Though it may share its objects of study with the linguistics or history as a scholarly discipline, literary criticism gains insight from an intimacy with and even mimicry of its object of study. Jonathan Kramnick is professor of English at Yale University. Previously, he has published the monographs Paper Minds, Literature and the Ecology of Consciousness, Actions and Objects from Hobbes to Richardson, and Making the English Canon, Print Capitalism, and the Cultural Past, 1700 to 1770. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Criticism and Truth argues that close reading is the disciplinary resource that allows literary criticism to say things about the world. It clarifies and legitimizes the discipline as a form of knowledge production. What is close reading and why is it so important to revalue that practice? Well, I think close reading is the distinctive method of literary disciplines and literary studies. Um, But I also think it's not exactly what we sometimes believe it to be or how or what we sometimes uh, describe it as. That is, for me, close reading is a practice of writing, not of reading. Um, And I think that we know that actually when we sit down and think about what a close reading is or what a reading is. Um, So it is a practice of making contact with, um, incorporating, quoting, um, stylistically integrating, or sometimes mimicking the language of the text that you're writing about. Um, It's not just simply slow and attentive reading. It's a practice of writing done in the service of explanation. This book is invested in criticism's ability to reach for and communicate truth. It's right there in the title. Yeah. Why is it important to set up truth as the goal instead of, say, wisdom or knowledge or social consciousness? Well, because I wanted to have the uh, to maybe raise the stakes as high as I could. Um, And it seemed like truth was uh, about as uh, serious uh, a claim as you could make. And um, while all those things that you just mentioned, uh, wisdom, knowledge, social consciousness, social transformation, um, all in one way or another depend on the um, truth finding capacities of literary criticism and close reading, um, I believe. Um, But I also think that um, when I say that uh, literary criticism tells truths about the world, that is truth in a particular kind of way. It's a it's a form of craft. It's a craft epistemology. It's a form of craft knowledge and uh, truth that comes out of the distinctively skilled practice of uh, handling, manipulating, turning uh, verbal artifacts one way or another. Um, and that truth is 
dwells in the aptness of one's practice. Um, it's not just discovering facts out there in the world and uh, presenting them clearly. So, uh, so for as much as I am invested in the category of truth and making a claim for close reading and literary studies as being in the business of truth, um, I also um, don't have a you know a positivist conception of truth as just facts out there in the world. Um, rather, truth being something that is the kind of uh, comes from applying your craft well. I want to go backwards a little bit and ask you to reflect about your own self-formation as a scholar. Sure. Did you have an origin story, a moment when you recognized an essay or a lecture as speaking truth? Did reading literary criticism impact your understanding of critical practice differently than meeting scholars and watching the work develop in workshops, seminars, and lectures at professional conferences? Well, it was all, all of the, what you just described was incredibly formative um, and uh, important to my own uh, development as a as a critic. Um, there was I can't think of a single critical text that was a kind of uh, flashpoint for me, and and in some ways that's important for the the ethos of the book, which is that. I don't want to make a claim on behalf of like singular genius, uh, charismatic virtuoso critics, uh, celebrities, or the kind of, you know, the famous ones. The book is really about the kind of everyday practice in the field. Um, and its ethos is democratic. Um, it is about literary criticism as it is done everywhere, all the time across the Academy in all of its different uh, locations. Um so uh, that's important for the question that you asked because it's real. My own formation and my own uh, recollection of being, you know, transformed by literary criticism is not, you know, reading a single essay by like a super famous critic. It's rather being assigned criticism all the time in graduate seminars um, and uh, and feeling like I wanted to write like that, um, feeling like I wanted to write like a critic and myself be assigned in a graduate seminar. Um, and that, you know, took a lot of time and a lot of work to uh, to, to figure out how to do, um, and a lot of failure. I mean, a lot of what graduate school is all about was uh, trying and failing to write like the criticism I was reading. I love that. I love that um, description of the kind of everyday, accumulative, um, just kind of ingrained in the the life of a scholar teacher um that's kind of wonderful rather than the kind of charismatic model right, right. the book is about practice um and it really wants to make practice more than more than manifesto um every day rather than celebrities um the kind of um uh, highly skilled intuitive uh forms of writing that critics across the, the landscape of the profession um, are uh, um, doing all the time. And, um, and in that respect, again, it's, uh, um, it's about, you know, the everyday practice. It's not about, uh, it's not about super famous critics. Um, and it was that kind of criticism that, you know, I wanted to write in the end. Yeah. And, and that seems much more reflective of where the profession is right now mm -hmm. and of the, the people participating in it. Um, you identify literary criticism as being balanced between creativity and truthfulness. That is to say, critics are truthful and that they are somewhat devoted to the text as it is. Right. right. They are treating the histories they are memorializing. Right. 
but critics are also creative and that criticism right. can be more than a gloss on an object of study. It can right. embed and extend what we encounter in the text. Right. right. Talk to us about the relationship of truth and creativity. So um, as you suggest, there's a kind of narrow sense of truthfulness that um, uh, that I think, you know, is without question, you know, important to the field, which is you can't just make stuff up. Um, your quotations have to be accurate. The general, you know, factual literary historical uh, range of claims that you're making have to actually like, you know, be in some, again, the narrow sense true, although that's not at all really what the book is focused on. For me, as I said earlier, truthfulness inheres in a kind of skilled practice of treating your materials um, uh, well, so that the so the knowledge is apt knowledge. It's a, it's a kind of skilled engagement with uh, uh, with the artifact itself, um, and uh, it's a process of making something. Close reading um, at its foundation as a practice of writing is always in one way or another going to be making an artifact of uh, of, uh, of some sort uh, in order to uh, in order to make an argument in order to pursue your argument you need to make a sentence um, and you need to make something from the materials with which you are working as you said earlier extending them or embedding them or imitating them in one way or another um, that way you, uh, criticism is fundamentally a creative act it's an act of making and bringing something into the world. Um, and uh, my argument is that it's impossible to, to, um, to untangle the epistemic from the aesthetic dimensions to literary criticism in that way. Criticism is, is true to the degree to which it actually makes something well. It is false to the degree to which it actually makes something poorly. And judging criticism is at once an aesthetic and epistemic judgment in that, in that respect. It seems to me that your training in 18th century literature is key to understanding yeah. what you are saying about how we practice literary criticism now. Um, for a long time, scholars have remarked that the 1700s was a key moment for the consolidation of a public sphere of writing and of yeah. the emergence of the literary critic as a cultural figure. Could we see the 18th century as being something of a mirror image of our own moment? Do you see criticism and truth as more of an expansion of that earlier work or a departure from it? Um, so uh, that's exactly right in the sense that criticism as a uh, as an enterprise begins in the 18th century. Uh, the, uh, the the term itself uh, is an 18th century word uh, and concept. Um, and um practiced you know intimately related to the uh to the emergence of the public sphere um and periodical journalism and those sorts of things um and i in fact my first book was entirely about that process uh so making the english canon which i published uh what is that now um 25 years ago almost um was a, a book centrally about that moment um uh the emergence of a national literary culture out of um uh, critical practice in the first two thirds of the 18th century. Um, so uh, in a way, criticism and truth is a return to those kinds of questions very broadly, but I begin the book by actually saying, I don't wanna do an historical study. Um, and I really wanna just look at now um, or the kind of long contemporary period, but, uh, and not focus on its origins or to make a claim about how we need to return to something or to say how like where we came from shapes the way, uh, you know, inhibits or uh, condemns what we do now. Um, I didn't wanna make either of those kinds of um, 
historical argument. So in some ways, the uh, the, the 18th century practice of literary criticism is is uh, irrelevant to the argument of criticism and truth. Um, even though, of course, I am the same person who uh, who wrote that book, who also wrote a book on early 18th century criticism at the very start of my career, my dissertation, then first book. Um, so uh, um, I have a footnote to Addison at the very end, uh, to Joseph Addison, you know, the most important literary critic of the 18th century, um, who uh, um, in uh, one of the first spectator papers says that, you know, he basically his ambition is to do what we would call public humanities. Um, I want to take uh, literature or philosophy, he says, out of the uh, universities and closets and into the uh, coffee houses and tea tables um, and um, and do as what we would now call public humanities. Um, so I bring that up, at the, you know, I think in a footnote at the very end of the book, which is about public, the public humanities or public criticism as sort of a feature of our contemporary moment and just sort of note the irony um, but, uh, um, uh, but beyond that, actually, like I, you know, polemically didn't want to do an historical study because I want to, I want to argue on behalf of the legitimacy of literary criticism now, um, and not to make a claim that it is like either fallen away from something to which we should return or that, you know, our benighted origins condemns our present practice. Two forms of historical argument that are common enough that I think are, you know, um, uh, not what the present moment actually calls for. Scholars in the humanities often see teaching as a big part of the value their disciplines bring to the world. They might say that the scholarship is a form of teaching or that teaching is the launching point and destination of the scholarly work. Uh, for you, what is the relationship between teaching and scholarship? Um, well, I think like everyone else um, uh, in the field and perhaps in the academy, I would say that they're intimately connected and inseparable. Um, that is, um, the classroom is the, both the, you know, source of energy and all, often the destination point of all, uh, of critical writing, um, and, um, uh, you know, a source of ideas, a source of, uh, validity, energy, all that. And as I mentioned a minute ago, um, when you asked me about, uh, my own, uh, beginnings, um, I always wanted to be taught. Um, I wanted the I wanted to be an assigned piece of literary criticism in a graduate seminar. Um, so my sense of uh, a critical writing is or literary criticism is that it's ultimately you know serves a disciplinary and pedagogical uh, purpose. Close reading as a practice of writing um, is a um, something that doesn't happen um, exactly in the classroom. Um, it, it happens in moments you know uh, like close to ones where we, you know, well, we're both sitting here in front of our computers talking. So like, you know, sit, situated the way that we are now, except we're not talking to each other, um, running our fingers over the uh, over the keyboard um, and writing. The, um, um, it then circulates in uh, non, uh, outside of classrooms and uh, libraries on, um, uh, on internet hosted platforms, um, and then uh, to create a kind of academic public sphere that is uh, depends upon the classroom, um, but is not uh, located precisely in the classroom. It has a different temporality, uh, a different mode of circulation. Uh, and then finally, the craft is a bit different, right? So like um, teaching a seminar uh, or, or giving a lecture are of course, incredibly skilled practices that one takes a lifetime to learn how to do and is always um, uh, 
working on perfecting, um, as I talked a little bit about sort of craft practices in the beginning of, a, of the book. Um, but they are different kinds of crafts uh, uh, than that of a um, writing literary criticism. Um, they uh, they have much more of a kind of oral give and take. Um, they are about paying attention to uh, the presence of other people in a room um, who are there in front of you immediately. Um, whereas uh, uh, the craft of um, uh, of writing a um, uh, of writing an essay is uh, or writing a book chapter or, or writing simply writing a sentence is uh, is a different kind of skill. Um, so there uh, is a uh, scholarship and pedagogy are, you know, as anyone would say, deeply interrelated. But part of what I'm after is uh, are some of the ways in which they are distinct practices as well. Um, Rachel Burma and Laura Heffernan's book on uh, the teaching archive um, uh, is a wonderful example of uh, uh, of looking at practice in the literary classroom as a site of the history of criticism. Um, I engage with it a bit in the beginning of criticism and truth. Um, I feel like we're in some ways. Um, after very similar questions, and I feel kind of allied to their book in uh, in important ways because we are all interested in practice, or uh, the two of them, and and I am interested in uh, in the practice of criticism rather than in the kind of uh, manifesto uh, abstract account of criticism. Um, but I also say that um, um, the kind of close reading practices that they're interested in. When they happen in the seminar room, are of a somewhat distinct kind from those that are in the uh, uh, in written criticism in in an article, in a book chapter, and so on, because of their different location, uh, their different mode of circulation, their different temporality. Yeah. Gilbert Ryle makes this distinction between knowing how or skilled mm -hmm. practice and knowing that or a certainty about a truth claim. In criticism and truth, you argue that these are in some ways the same thing in literary criticism. Mm -hmm. How do you see this reflected in our disciplinary work? And why is it important that we literary critics read papers at conferences right. uh, very diligently, very responsibly? We read the words as they are on the page yeah. instead of extemporaneously commenting on PowerPoint slides as they do in other disciplines. Right. So, um, Ryle's uh, chapter on knowing how and knowing that um, in the concept of mind was very important for me in writing this book um, uh, insofar as it really you know, brought out the kind of history of the idea of craft knowledge um, and gave a set of categories associated with it so that um, we could begin to think about um, uh, practice as being epistemically rich, not as being something that kind of follows from uh, uh, an, an epistemology or um, or knowledge or truth claims that are antecedent to it, um, and then just simply gets put into practice. But rather, that the practice of writing criticism is where the epistemology inheres and where its aesthetics inhere. So, um, in that regard, uh, uh, Ryle's uh, idea of know-how was actually, to me, quite important. Um, where I uh, turn from Ryle is the idea that there's this wall between knowing how and knowing that, as you put it in the question, and that um, only knowing that, which is a more propositional form of knowledge, is really um, uh, gets you to the world, um, and uh, and it conveys or picks out features of the world and gives you a certain truth of one kind or another. And knowing how is just uh, a kind of um, uh, intelligent action that might bring you there. Um, that's 
not how I see things. I, as you suggest, I mean, for me, like the uh, the way the apt treatment of language or verbal artifacts is itself like where everything happens. Um, it's a it's a form of know-how that actually is both truth-bearing and beautiful. Um, and it's where the value of the uh, of the critical artifact lies. Um, and so as you asked me about uh, why it is that we read papers, that's the point I make in the book, um, sort of in passing, um, that uh, has always just struck me, which is that um, uh, literary critics don't extemporize over power, PowerPoints in the main. Uh, the default mode of conference presentation in literary studies is reading of a paper word for word. Why is that? Well, that's because the way that we write our sentences matters and that you and that there are right or wrong, good or bad, you know, beautiful or ugly entirely uh, because of the way that they are written. So that we can't move below um, the, say, the surface structure of the sentence of criticism to some sort of like deeper account of things. We can't reduce it to something or we can't paraphrase it to use Clanth Brooks Brooks's terms into some other simpler kind of distilled uh, language or um, uh, or argument um, and put it like in a bullet form on a PowerPoint that just kind of denatures what criticism really is all about. So um, this is, I think it's so one of those moments that is, I think it's interesting because it's, it's about our practice. Um, and it's something in our practice that actually I think is deeply significant, like our resistance to um, uh, extemporizing over PowerPoint, which is our resistance to paraphrase, which is also our resistance to reduction, which is our belief in whether we understand ourselves believing it or not, um, that the way that we write our sentences entirely matters and that you can't rewrite them into some other form um, uh, and you can't reduce them into something simpler. I saw my own uh, approach to academic writing captured in your description and a, a wonderful- oh, I'm glad. Yeah. I find myself discovering things about my argument in the doing of the writing, just like mm -hmm. with a text, you know, figuring, mm -hmm. out, um, figuring out what I want to say about it. Um, stitching close readings together with theoretical framing, together with the discussion of the stakes, something about the construction of the chapter or the article requires a pivoting or reinvention of what I'm doing or I'm or how I'm thinking about the literary artifact. Mm -hmm. Even something so much as like a transition between paragraphs right. yeah, can yeah, yeah. block something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a lot of the pleasure and the challenge of it is in that process. Um, how do we stay alive to that ongoingness and the open vulnerability of that process? It seems to me that some of the, um, the the way we structure conferences or the job market, right. for instance, right. is all about reduction, as as you put right. it, all about extemporizing. Um, how might we approach that in the way we evaluate articles or the way we yeah. conferences or the way we approach graduate education? Well, um, one of the points I want to make uh, in the claim that uh, we evaluate works uh, of criticism aesthetically as well as epistemically, and that creativity is important, um, is to allow space for experiment um, uh, and innovation in critical style. Uh, for the most part, as I said at the very beginning, what I'm interested in in the book is uh, in some ways like the what I call the ordinary science of the discipline. Criticism is practiced everywhere all the time. Um, at the same time, I think it's also important to understand that uh, literary criticism doesn't, you know, is not a kind of 
ossified into a changeless structure. Uh, it is something that is constantly being renewed and revitalized. Um, and that we are in a moment of interesting experiment and change. Um, I'll say a little bit about that in a second, I think, when I talk about some of the stuff that I want to do post-book. But um, but uh, I do think as you, uh, when it comes to evaluating work, when it comes to putting together conferences, when it comes to the categories of hiring, it is important to recognize that um, uh, the, that the discipline ought to be changing. It ought to be open to new, not only new ideas, uh, but insofar as ideas are in, in criticism, wed to practice and inseparable from practice, it really needs to be open to new practices as well. Um, and so I think that um, part of the um, the aliveness of, uh, of literary criticism and keeping it alive um, is, uh, is recognizing that um, uh, it has to be open to change. Um, and, uh, and part of that, I think, is, 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 is a separate issue, but I think part of that is its relationship to the literary, which is that's what the literary is, ultimately, um, on, you know, what you described as ongoingness, open-endedness, something that is, you know, alive to change. Maybe we can return to the idea of literary critics mimicking the text they're engaging sure. with. Can you give us some examples of that? Um, well, I'm, uh, so my interest in close reading begins with quotation because uh, because quotation is a practice that is, you know, where you are, as it were, touching the verbal artifact. Um, and it's uh, and it's central to close reading. Um, and uh, and to, again, it's constitutive refusal of paraphrase. So uh, quotation, of course, resists paraphrase because you're not paraphrasing anything. You're taking pieces of the artwork. Um, the uh, criticism is unique among the uh, among the humanities in or the interpretive humanities insofar as it works within uh, the uh, it shares a medium with its object. So that's not true of art history. It's not true of music. Uh, um, it is, however, true of literary studies that we uh, that you know we write in words about words, um, and uh, and so we are able to quote them and integrate them into our sentences. I think. In that sense, you know, quotation is vital to, or an, an understanding quotation is, uh, is you know, incredibly important for how we understand close reading to work and how we understand the discipline to be structured. And it's most kind of like, you know, uh, um, basic or foundational sense. Um, what you described, or what you're asking me about, our uh, mimicry, stylistic mimicry, um, stands at something like a slight shade away from direct quotation. Um, indirect quotation off, often, which is why um, I align it with free and direct discourse in the novel. It's when critics sound like the works that they are writing about um, without quoting them directly. Um, and often it's, you know, right next to direct quotation, right next to block quotation, or right next to forms of in-sentence quotation. Um, and it is, uh, um, you know, you and it is, as it were, like, leveraged or launched from the uh the the uh the blended nature of quoted direct quoted speech and then you know in the sentence after that you get something that is um indirect um and is uh like a sh uh, you know a somewhat of a fading away from the uh, from the artifact itself but still is in its voice um those acts of free and critical free and direct discourse, I think, are uh, are really really interesting to track, um, and they have to do with um, 
a form of, uh, again, it's specific, it's a kind of medium specific form of interpretation that is uh, um, bound up with the unique uh, relationship between, criti between critical writing and the writing that criticism is writing about. You know, um, one of the things in literary criticisms that's always puzzled me is, is the use of somewhat obsolete or archaic phrases like hitherto. That, that's something you'll yeah. see in contemporary literary criticism. And you're making me kind of reflect on that instead of a, a sort of an assumption of a kind of critical personality, um, more the openness or the susceptibility for us to mirror the artifacts we're engaging yeah. in, um, which is a powerful, I think, way of thinking about that. And it's bound up with what we were talking about earlier with the creative dimension, because you're making something, you know, uh, uh, and you, uh, and it's bound up with, with the aesthetic judgment of works of criticism, as we were talking about earlier, because when we evaluate those sentence of sentences of criticism, what we are evaluating is how well and how apt they are fit to their object. Um, and in that sense, you know, when we're talking about free and direct discourse, it's how well do they seem to extend uh, the uh, the language of the uh, of the verbal artifact that they're working with. Okay, that's something I think I'm going to borrow from you with, with due citation, apt to their object, a great phrase um, for for judging criticism. Apt is a, is a word I like to use because it, it has as its root the idea of like fastening, um, uh, like, you know, linking and clipping one thing to another. Um, and it's both, it's in that sense, it's describing a kind of physical, ecological relationship between the sentence of criticism and the sentences out there in the world that the critics, that criticism is engaging with. Um, and it's also an evaluative term. It's, it's, a, it, it's, it's telling you that that kind of connection has been done well. That's, that's lovely. That's um, a, a wonderful description. I love the book design of Criticism uh -huh. and Truth, issued by the University of Chicago Press. So yeah, let's give our roses to Matt um, Awery, uh, the yeah. designer. It is a um, three by three arrangement of various snapshots from the book. A passage on Daniel Deronda is there, some mm -hmm. Fred Waugh's poetry. It renders a lot of the themes of the book visually, yeah. visually very well. Um, as an author, how do you relate to this finished artifact? Do you see your book differently through the analytic of the cover? Uh, well, I thought the cover is terrific, and I love what the I love the design. Um, the uh, taking those little squares and uh, of um, pretty defamiliarized words. I mean, you can make out some of them. Others, are, there's a little bit of Toni Morrison in there as well from the Christina Sharp uh, uh, quote that I or the Christina Sharp piece that I discussed. Her style of quoting uh, Morrison. Um, and there's the Fred Waugh and there's the Deronda. There's also a couple that I just don't recognize because they're so close up um, or because you can't see enough of the words. Um, but what uh, what the design does is it, it it shows you the act of making something from language, uh, the uh, the building something uh, from the verbal um, and the uh, the making of of a aesthetic object from an aesthetic object. Um, and uh, that which is, I think, what criticism is, in fact, doing all the time. So. Uh, um, there I thought that the design captured it beautifully, captured the argument, or at least one feature of the argument of the book really, really beautifully. Also, the uh, it has a nice, all I said to the designers uh, uh, 
when I when we were discussing what the book might look like was that I wanted it to have a kind of retro feel to be look like it might be like a like a Herbert Marcuse paperback from the 60s or 70s or something like that. Um, and that I wanted an ampersand between criticism and truth. Uh, and uh, and I thought they came up with that kind of retro feel pretty well, too. I know you've written some very powerful and as an early career scholar, very helpful pieces for the Chronicle of Higher Education um, on the job markets, on hiring processes. Um, how do you see this book fitting into the larger uh, institutional, um, disciplinary um, condition stakes that we're in right now? Um, well, I think that the, the contemporary institutional stakes uh, are, um, you know, determined by writing the book. I wrote the book because I wanted to give an account of literary criticism that would uh, defend or provide a rationale for the practice amidst a time of uh, uh, a real peril for the uh, for the discipline, especially as younger scholars. Um, and um, I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to do another, like, you know, what's the value of the humanities? Like that just seemed like that, there just seemed like kind of no space in that discourse. Um, and also like there was, there was no, in a sense, it was beginning to seem like there was no audience for that discourse as well, just because so many of the moves were predictable. But I, but I felt like no one was really making a strong claim for literary criticism as a practice um, and for literary studies as having epistemic good standing. Um, and I wanted to make that claim, um, not say that we should stop doing one thing in order to do something else, not say that, you know, that criticism needs to, and literary studies needs to like adapt for the times, you know, like uh, start doing more whatever computational this or more like something else. And, uh, I, and, and certainly not make the claim um, that we ought to stop doing close reading. Uh, but rather provide an account of the field that would actually recognize uh, the practice that is actually done um, to say to literary critics, your practice is amazing. Um, uh, and then say to the world, this is why this practice is so amazing. Um, and, uh, and it seemed like that was actually quite timely. Um, that uh, in a moment of, uh, of horrible austerity for uh, for universities um, uh, and a moment where the humanities are in particular peril, um, it seemed like actually providing a positive account of the field um, might do some good. Um, uh, it wouldn't by itself, of course, solve anything. Um, the actual uh, situation isn't gonna improve um, without, um, uh, Fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, rebuilding universities and uh, and uh, supporting the humanities in a kind of infrastructural sense, um, without jobs, in other words, meaningful jobs. Um, I think it's very, very important that uh, academics, uh, as secure in their livelihoods as me, um, are constantly aware of that and constantly doing everything that we can. Nevertheless, it did seem like one thing I could do uh, would be to provide a um, a compelling, hopefully. Uh, a particular, unexpected, um, positive account of the practice of the field. Um, and that returns to what I described earlier as being the kind of democratic ethos of the book, which is like, again, I didn't want to focus on celebrities and I didn't want to tell people to stop doing what they're doing. I wanted to focus on literary criticism that is 
out there in the world done by everyone. Um, and I wanted to tell people that it's great. Keep it up. Um, it's great. Keep it up. And part of keeping it up is, of course, to transform it, you know, and to rebuild it and to renew it and all that important stuff. Uh, yeah, that's that's wonderful. And I, I, for one, found myself reflected in your discussion of um, both the practices and the meaning that they can lend. Um, ah, wonderful. To, to one's work. Um, some of what you say might be particularly true of the Anglo-American literary critical tradition mm -hmm. is that the way we deliver papers or the way we evaluate yeah. articles would be very different in other traditions. Yeah. Um, do you see the transnational nature of English studies uh, putting pressure on some of the norms of literary criticism in that particular? I, don't know. I mean, you know, to be honest, like the more involved I've gotten with uh, transnational literary studies, uh, the more it seems to me like the uh, like uh, the practices that I'm describing, you know, are uh, the practices of the world, um, uh, forms of apt quotation. Uh, forms of uh, of stylistic mimicry. Um, this is not just something that happens in the United States Academy. This is something that happens in global English as well. Global English literary criticism, that is. Um, so I think it is one of the most important features of the uh, broader infrastructural picture of uh, literary studies these days uh, is that it is now global. It's happening uh, in English, not just in, in the United States and Britain, um, but uh, you know, in various sites across the across the globe, but I actually don't think that uh, uh, that the model um, that I'm talking about uh, is um, uh, is all that different. I think that's one. I think that's actually something that's profoundly interesting. One thing I would add, though, is that um, to a certain extent, I just don't really know. I mean, I, I have a sense of what's happening in. Um, uh, domains of uh, criticism uh, at the global level or outside of the Anglo-American sphere, um, just by doing kind of largely over Zoom, um, uh, getting my, getting a sense of, uh, of uh, global English literary criticism. Um, but also I, I wanna make clear uh, that um, I, my knowledge is limited and um, and it's an area that I would, you know, that I hope to learn more about um, and, uh, and to discover uh, and to do discovery, um, because it's one of the most exciting features of uh, the contemporary critical landscape. I like to ask writers about their writing process, and I'm particularly interested in how you go about putting together books and articles. Um, I liked how the acknowledgments uh, section of the book reflects the communal way that this uh, book came together. You talk about um, having a, a graduate student seminar um, where you, you hashed out some of the ideas. Mm -hmm. What is your practice of writing, drafting, and revising? Uh, has that changed with each book? Um, good question. I think that my practice has remained pretty consistent over the years, um, which is um, I tend to write in the mornings, um, and uh, and then um, you know sometimes later in the day, but it's mainly a morning activity. Uh, it's um, I tend to begin with revision. Um, uh, and then um, new prose is often um, the very last thing um, after a, a pretty intense uh, morning of um, uh, of going over very closely uh, and uh, and asking myself uh, about the um, uh, the sentences that I've written in the previous day 
and there what I try to do is just to is just to listen to them and and ask myself constantly does that sound right does that sound right um I and um and I live in fear that something sounds wrong um I live in mortal fear that uh, that someone will read a sentence of mine and think oh that's off um that was awkward um um that was you know that was uh clumsy um so I I um I try my best to make uh to make it all you know sound exactly right I guess um I um I consider my practice to be more than this is a a kind of a paraf a loose paraphrase to use a term that of course I used pejoratively earlier of uh of Joan Didion or maybe it's a direct quotation um I, as a writer of sentences rather than of uh, uh of essays or chapters um that is like for me like the unit is the sentence and then the connecting one sentence to another sentence one thing that uh me and a couple, you know, literary critic friends do is um, we we have an ongoing Google Doc where we add sentences that we admire um, in other, you know, literary crafts people. Um, and so, you know, one of them is in 19th century American. One of them is in like contemporary pop culture, and just seeing the range of experimentation, um, stylistic variation. That's great. Um, is is wonderful. Do you have any practices like that? I uh, not like Google Doc, but one thing that I've done I, ever since I was in graduate school is to keep uh, uh, books next to my desk or next to my computer on my desk uh, of, uh, of of uh, writers that I admire. Um, and just if I feel like if something is not coming out, if I if something is blocked, or if I can't figure out how to say something the way that I want to say it, um, I'll just pick up a book by uh, someone whose prose uh, I admire and uh, and just read. Uh, you know paragraph or two just to kind of like dislodge something uh, now that this book is out in the world what are you turning your attention to another book an article a class a hobby <laughs> um well uh i'm going to uh, continue to write some material adjacent to the book and think about criticism for a while um so i have a um a piece that I'm working on that's on uh, experimental criticism, sort of uh, continuing to think about the relationship between criticism and creative writing. Um, and uh, I want to look at criticism that is uh, lies closer in some ways to memoir, um, where the first person is uh, is more present on the page, or that takes an unusual form um, that is, for example, a note form rather than a continuous essay form, more fragmented um, or discontinuous. And um, and in those ways, just look at very contemporary criticism that is, um, in some ways, pushing against or attempting to uh, reconsider uh, received forms of critical writing. Um, the the book criticism and truth is very much about and very much a celebration of uh, what are consensus forms of critical writing. Um, and I'm interested in um, sort of moving on from the book, thinking about. Uh, contemporary criticism written under the same conditions um, that is has just a bit of a more of experimental shape. Um, so that essay uh, is called Observations on Experimental Criticism, uh, taking off a bit from Margaret Cavendish, uh, who wrote a book called Observations on Experimental Philosophy in the uh, middle of the 17th century. Um, and uh, I'm just beginning to, uh, to, to write it, to think about it, um, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, and uh, and after that, um, I'm planning on returning, I think, to the 18th century. Um, I have a, a longer book project in the works that uh, begins with Alexander Pope uh, that 
might stay entirely with Alexander Pope. Um, I'm interested in his uh, multimedia practice and uh, and thinking about Pope as um, as an aesthetic practitioner um, working in several media, uh, working with verbal art, obviously, but also working with um, uh, working with land art um, and uh, and sort of experimental physical uh, objects and places. Um, so. Um, that's a, a longer project taking me back to uh, to you know my uh, my period of specialty and uh, and where I began and I'm looking forward to doing that too. Both of those projects sound very exciting for, for me, especially the work on experimental criticism. I think it's a, a rich area right now. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Jonathan. You're welcome, John. Thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation.